We're going to be wrapping up, Lord willing, the third chapter in our Confession of Faith. The seventh paragraph is deals with, we work through the doctrine of God's eternal decree. And, and admittedly, we've been in some deep water, haven't we? As we think about and meditate and contemplate the eternal decree of God, especially as it focuses upon his divine, eternal, unconditional election of a finite, definite, immutable number of both men and angels. Our heads can swim, and we can get so focused and caught up in what our confession calls a high mystery that we can actually miss God himself. So as we begin this, looking at this paragraph, it's a very important paragraph, and, and it often, even in, in commentaries on our confession, doesn't get, I think, the attention that it deserves, because it, it really helps shape and, and inform and instruct us in how we hold this doctrine. So let's pray and ask for the Lord to give us help as we consider how we, as God's people, hold fast to this wonderful, glorious doctrine, and how do we do that in a way that both glorifies God, encourages us as his people, but also is not a thorn, not a stumbling block to others. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise for your great mercy to us. Thank you that in your divine wisdom, according to the most wise counsel of your own will, that you have not only made this eternal decree, but you have informed us of your mind on this matter. That according to your mercy, you've caused this to be written down for us to study and contemplate and meditate upon it. And I pray that by your Spirit's help, we would think rightly, Think humbly, think with thanksgiving about this glorious doctrine of eternal election, eternal predestination. Let us take comfort in our triune God, that not only have you declared all things that will come to pass, but by, by your most wise providence, according to your own goodness, you cause these things to come about and assure us that without fail, you will accomplish your good purposes. I pray that our hearts would be stirred to give you praise and honor and glory as we meditate upon these things. It's in Christ that we ask this. Amen. The handling of the doctrine of, of this eternal decree of God, and particularly the predestination and election, in a sense provides for us a test. As we meditate upon these things, there's, there's a sort of a latent, inherent test. How do you respond to the doctrine of election? And, and maybe as you sit here this morning, this is not new to, to you in this room, but perhaps at, at some point in time, you had already been a Christian and then you were exposed to the doctrines of grace. How did your, how did your heart respond to that? How did your flesh respond to that? Do do you respond with, with anger or anxiety or a sense of, of fearfulness? Do you respond with pride? 
Do you respond with a sense of your own worth? Do you, do you look with disdain upon other men who don't believe this? Or who have not embraced the same gospel that you have embraced? Or do you think even badly about other Christians who don't hold to the doctrines of grace? Who, who reject this notion of God's decreeing all things from eternity whatsoever may come to pass? Or do you respond with humility? with thanksgiving? Do you, do you respond with a sense of your own unworthiness and a charity and forbearance with others as you contemplate on the divine election? See, there really is a test here, isn't there? Because how we respond to this really tells us something about what we really believe, not only about the doctrine itself, but about the author of the doctrine, about God. I want to read the, the paragraph. It's paragraph 7. Uh, if you have a copy of the Confession, I invite you to turn there or grab one of the Trinity hymnals there nearby you, and, and you can turn to the very last paragraph. As we've been contemplating this, this doctrine of, of predestination, we, we are confronted with this statement. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Having read that, we're gonna, I'm going to break this down into to three main headings. One is, is the handling of the doctrine itself. How do we handle the doctrine? Secondly, what are the effects? Effects of this doctrine of predestination upon God's people. What should this doctrine produce in us? We can think of this in terms of what covenant blessings do we receive as a consequence of God working his decree out in time when we are justified, effectually called and justified. And then finally, what is the appropriate, the appropriate response for us? How do we appropriately, as Christians, respond to this doctrine of election? I think Peter is a great help to us as we consider those questions. In 2 Peter, in his second epistle, in the very first chapter, I'm going to read the first 15 verses. And Peter's a great help to us, and he is saying almost exactly the very same things that are summarized for us in this paragraph. Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things 
that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be, at, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Thinking about the language in our confession of faith here, it begins with this statement, the doctrine, this doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. By using the language of high mystery, where does that immediately take our minds? To heaven, to the mind of God. You know, we've been wrestling as we build upon in our confession, layer upon layer, chapter 1 describing the doctrine of the Scriptures, chapter 2 describing the doctrine of God. What do we confess about this majestic God? And back in chapter 2, we confess that it is God who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So this language of appealing to this, this doctrine of election as a high mystery takes us into the very throne room of God takes us into the incomprehensible, ineffable, inestimable mind of God. And that's where our focus ought to be rooted. When we think about the doctrine of election, where do our minds ordinarily go? To the things of the earth. To man. And, and we immediately come, the objection is always the same, isn't it? Well, isn't that, is that not fair? Isn't that unfair for God to choose some and not choose others? And the language of a high mystery focuses our attention where it ought to rest upon the mind of God. Now, there's a part of me, and I've always wondered about this. I, I appreciate the statement. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination 
is to be handled with special prudence and care. There's a recognition that these are deep waters, they're weighty waters, they're, they're, they're waters into which we, we struggle to swim. Our, our minds cannot comprehend the things of God. His ways are beyond our ways. And so I, and there's a part of me that always wished this paragraph came first in this chapter in our confession. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be more persuasive even if we start, if we led with this winsome kind of statement to say, you know, we believe this firmly, but we want to believe it carefully. The language of the confession is with prudence and care, special prudence and care. But you know what? That betrays something in me. That betrays a sense of man-centeredness that I don't think our fathers shared. I think there's a reason they bring this at the end. It's because they want the focus to be upon God, upon His majesty and glory, and upon the incomprehensible nature of His decree and the incomprehensible nature of His own person, rather than upon us, which is where I tend, and maybe you do too, tend to put the, the emphasis, is on man. Chad Van Dixhorn, I've quoted him a couple of times. He has a, a very helpful commentary on the Westminster Confession, published by Banner of Truth. And the Westminster language on chapter 7, we've noted some variances between our two confessions at various points, but there's no variance. Word for word for word, paragraph 7. Now, in theirs is paragraph 8. They add, there's an additional paragraph added. But those paragraphs are word for word for word exactly the same. And he says this, he says, as the final paragraph in this chapter reminds us, this is a high mystery and needs to be handled with special prudence and care. Listen to this, both shepherds and sheep need to remember that God has revealed this doctrine of election primarily to teach us about himself. Children are not to answer back to their parents, much less are we to answer back to God. And he cites Romans 9.20. Who are you, O man? Shall the potter or shall the clay say to the potter, why have you made me thus? So, number one, the doctrine ought to center our attention upon God himself. And so that as we, as we think about how do we handle this with special care or special prudence and care, that doesn't mean we are wishy-washy about the doctrine itself. Special care doesn't mean we equivocate. Special prudence and care does not mean that we... That we demote this doctrine in a sense and say that it's unimportant. See, our culture thinks if you're going to handle something carefully, it means you don't handle it at all. You just sort of pretend it isn't there. It, it's like the, the disagreement at the family dinner table at Thanksgiving. We just all agree not to talk about it and hope that it doesn't cause a conflict. That's not the special prudence and care. That's not what the phrase means. It means that we orient our thinking to God and not to man. You see the difference? That's the special prudence is we need to maintain a Godward perspective. The special care means we need to fix our eyes upon the wisdom and the goodness and the perfections of God himself. But there's something else that we see here that's, that's articulated in this paragraph and I think are very helpful, and it's, it's the effects. It's what uh, Dr. Renahan, when he does, and you may remember this from many months ago, when I did the, the big picture outline of the confession and looking at the various parts, and chapters 1 through 6 constitute the, the foundational principles. 
And then we get from chapter 7 up to chapter 20 is the second section. It's covenant blessings and covenant benefits. And, and the way that it's structured, Dr. Dr. Renahan outlines for us and shows us this is a covenant blessing. This is what God does. Things like effectual calling, justification, saving faith, sanctification, adoption. And I've got those out of order. These are things that God does. And we're reminded, and again, we read the confession sideways. So there's an anticipation in this paragraph about things that are going to be developed much later. But notice the language. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That's been attending the will of God, revealed in his word, and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Notice the effects. There are four of them. One is that we will attend the will of God revealed in his word. See, the, the effect of God's eternal decree culminating in an effectual call and justification and adoption and sanctification being set apart as holy unto God, the effect of that is that this new believer in Christ will increasingly want to attend the will of God as it's revealed in the Word of God. But secondly, yielding obedience thereunto. Yielding obedience to the Word of God. And, look at the very last part, the very last four words, and sincerely obey the gospel. There's a perseverance in believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we see that the, the phrase is, may from the certainty of their effectual vocation, that's, that's another way of saying their effectual calling, be assured of their eternal election. So it's the doctrine of assurance. The doctrine of assurance. Turn with me in the confession to chapter 14. I want to show you how this anticipates. This is the chapter on saving faith. I want to show you how this anticipates things that are going to come later in the confession. In paragraph 1 of chapter 14, it defines this saving faith. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. So we saw that last week, that God has ordained not only all things that would come to pass, but the means by which they would come to pass. And especially the means by which those he had elected from eternity would hear the word of God, be called effectually by the Spirit of God, justified, adopted, and sanctified, and preserved to glory. God has ordained the means thereunto as well. By which, back to the confession, and also the, or by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means, appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. But I want to draw your attention particularly to paragraph 2. By this faith, this true saving faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself. Now see, that's flushing out a little bit more what was said way back in chapter 3 in paragraph 7, attending the will of God revealed in his word. You see the, see the connection. Look at the next, the next phrase. And also apprehendeth an excellency therein, meaning in the word of God, above all other... Well, I, I, I backed up. I skipped something. 
By this faith, the Christian believeth to be true whatever is revealed in the Word of God for the authority of God. And see, in paragraph 7 of chapter 3, we confess an effect of this effectual calling and justification is yielding obedience there unto the Word. Continuing in chapter 14, in paragraph 2. So you, you like me, you may have your, your finger flipping back and forth here. But I want you to see how the, the concepts are brought over and, and expanded upon. And also apprehendeth an excellency therein, meaning in the word of God above all other writings and all things in the world. As it bears forth, meaning the word of God bears forth the glory of God in his attributes, the excellency of Christ in his nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations. You see, this is, this is a, a reference or a, an expansion upon this concept of the high mystery. Here we're looking at the Trinitarian work of salvation and the Trinitarian work in our saving faith. And so is enabled. This is the, the, those who have true saving faith. That man is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth thus believed. And also... This same man who has possesses saving faith acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands. See, that's exactly the same phrase, yielding obedience thereunto. Yielding obedience to the commands of the word, trembling at the threatenings of the word of God, embracing the promises of God in his word, we could add, for this life, and that which is to come. See, that's a reference to our assurance. Grabbing hold and clinging and holding fast to these promises, both for this age and the age to come. But the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, meaning direct access to Christ, a relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. And that by virtue of the covenant of grace is a parallel passage to what we see, the very last phrase in paragraph th 7, chapter 3, to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Do you see how these, these, these things are woven like a fine tapestry? Introduced here and expanded upon. So this paragraph, in a sense, helps ground us really helps to ground us, because when we find ourselves contemplating the high mystery of unconditional, eternal, divine election and predestination, we can wander off very quickly into all kinds of speculations, can't we? We can seek to traverse highways that our Lord has not plotted for us. In the Westminster Confession, they reference Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. In other words, there are secret things that God has in his own mind that, quite frankly, are none of our business. They're not given to us to contemplate or to understand. We are not held responsible for not understanding them. But God has revealed much to us that we are responsible to do. And so what the confession helps to ground us and remind us that there are great mysteries, there are high mysteries here in the doctrine of election. 
There are things that, that are beyond our finding out in this age. But there are also many things that have been given to us, commands given to us, promises given to us, for which we are responsible. And what are those? To attend the will of God revealed in his word. Sometimes we can tie ourselves up in knots thinking, oh, am I, am I elect? Am I elect? Or is my loved one elect? And Proclaim the gospel. Believe the gospel. Obey the commands of the scriptures. That's what's given to us. Yielding obedience to his word. And as the, the confession expands upon that in chapter 14, we want to believe the things that God has given to us, the promises. We want to obey the commands. We want to tremble at the threatenings. We want to rejoice and give thanksgiving to his special and as, as Peter says, his precious and very great promises. And isn't this exactly what Peter says to us? And I read from 2 Peter chapter 1. He's given us these precious and very great promises, and he says you need to make your, your calling and election sure. And how do you do that? By diligently obeying what he's given you to do. And by, by growing in his grace, growing in that, that obedience, we are further assured of our effectual vocation, our effectual calling. We can so easily worry far too much about what God may or may not have done in eternity and spend our time speculating about that rather than contemplating what has he commanded me to do today. And so I, I reminded, this I don't know why, this is a funny image that came to my mind. Remember the scene in the original Indiana Jones when Indy is there at a, a Middle Eastern bazaar, a market, and there's the Arab swordsman, and he's doing all this, this stuff with the sword. Remember Indy's response? He kind of looks at him, smirks, and one shot with the revolver. And I think about that theologically. We can spend a whole lot of time with our sword play. We, we can get the sword of the Word of God and spin it around, and we've got all these scripture passages we can quote, and we can talk about infralapsarian and superlapsarian, and we can talk about, speculate upon the eternal mind of God and the gun levels at us and says, are you obedient to what God has given to you? Will you obey what I've given to you? Will you believe the promises revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you submit yourself to the means that God has given to you? Parents, when you think about the salvation of your own children, and hopefully your, your holy hearts yearn to see your children embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and be ransomed out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's own Son? Will you submit yourself to the means that God has appointed? Will you believe that those means are sufficient and that God is pleased to use those means to save those whom he has appointed to life from all of eternity? Because we can, we can tie ourselves up in knots as parents. Wrestling about, is my child elect? Are they not elect? I don't know and you don't know. What we do know is that God is good and just and faithful and abundant in mercy and that he has appointed means by which he calls his elect to himself and by which he sanctifies his elect and preserves them. So we want to focus on the high mysteries of heaven rather than the ordinary faithfulness God demands of us on earth. Our, our flesh sometimes will want us to entertain these mysteries to distract us from, or really maybe even to excuse us from, 
just ordinary obedience where we sit right now. So submit yourselves to the revealed will of God rather than tying yourself into speculative knots worrying about God's secret will. John Owen, this, uh, Dr. Renahan, in his the second volume of his Symbolics book, he quotes extensively, a very long quote from John Owen, but I think the most helpful phrase, John Owen says this, he said, a master requires of his servant to do what he commands, not to accomplish what he intends, which perhaps he never discovered unto him. In other words, even as parents, we give instructions to our children. We don't hold them responsible for knowing why we've told them to do that. Or knowing all the thought processes that went into that instruction. We just expect them to do what we've told them to do, don't we? And if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Father in Heaven know how to give good gifts to His children? So our, our Father in Heaven is not holding you responsible, saints, for working out His secret will. He will never, ever, ever hold you to account for not discovering his secret intentions. But he will hold you to account. He will hold me to account for disobeying or failing to do what he has revealed to us. Dr. Rinehan makes this observation as he kind of ties these things together. He says, the language obliquely warns against errors such as Arminianism and hyper-Calvinism. This paragraph helps guard us from that proverbial ditch on each side of the road. Okay, On the one hand, it tells men to act on the Scriptures. Arminians reject, this is Renahan quoting, Arminians reject the doctrine as stated because they heighten concepts such as free will. Now our confession will work that out in chapter 9. But they, they, they want to focus on free will, while on the other hand, hyper-Calvinists so elevate sovereignty that they ignore human responsibility. Presumption has no place in the Christian life, Dr. Renahan continues, nor can it produce assurance. The Puritan doctrine tells men to do what the Scriptures say, and in so doing, they will enjoy the benefits of assurance of election. In other words, don't mess with the sword and all your acrobatics. Level the bullet of obedience, to put it crudely. And see here, there's both a promise and a duty to pursue assurance of faith. On the one hand, and I wrestled with this, where to put this in the outline, because assurance in one hand is in some ways both a cause and effect. It is, it is an effect of the gospel taking root in us. And so in some ways, it's, it's a covenant gift of God. But on the other hand, according to the Scriptures, and, and Peter makes this very clear, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted excuse me, that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, or to work, eight, work out your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What's Peter saying? The path to assurance of your faith is obedience. It's stirring up the gifts in you. It, it is, it is add to, it's reason to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and, and, and so on. And, and by so doing, 
by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, your assurance of faith will increase. Because you see with your own eyes, you perceive with your own heart that God's promises are true and they're being worked out in you. Lastly, let's consider the right response or, or the right uh, heart, if we can say it this way, of God's people towards this doctrine. Remember I said at the beginning, this is somewhat of a test. It, it's somewhat of a test to know, have we internalized this doctrine? Have we believed it in such a way that it produces the right kind of fruit? And if this doctrine of election is producing in you something like fear or anxiety or, or a troubled spirit, then, then it's, it's possible you haven't understood the doctrine correctly. Or it's possible that you haven't embraced the gospel. Because God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. If, if your response to this doctrine is, is a sense of pride, a sense of superiority to other men, then you certainly have not understood this doctrine correctly. You have not understood the part that this, was, this, this election is based upon the sheer mercy and goodness and unmerited favor of God. That, that, that your election, if you were in Christ, your election was wholly undeserved, wholly unmerited, and wholly unconditioned upon anything that you've ever done or anything that God foresaw in you. If this doctrine, on the other hand, produces a, a disdain in your heart toward other believers, even other believers who perceive the gospel from a, a more Arminian perspective and, and have the emphasis more on man's responsibility and man's will, but you look with disdain upon them. But perhaps you haven't understand this doctrine correctly. But on the other hand, if what you find as you meditate upon the eternal election of God is, is a growing sense of praise and reverence and admiration of God, now you've got it. If you find in yourself a growing sense of humility, a growing desire to be diligent, to the means of grace, and a growing desire to be diligent to all duties that God has given to Christians. If you find yourself a growing, what is referred to here in our confession, an abundant consolation, meaning a, a, a growing sense of the weight of your debt and yet the certainty of its having been paid. Now you've got it. Now you've got the doctrine. If that's the response it's producing in you, then you've understood it correctly. If it's producing anything other than praise, reverence, and admiration of God, if it's producing a praise and admiration of yourself and your own diligence, or if it's producing a praise and an admiration of your own wisdom for figuring this gospel thing out, you haven't understood it correctly. If it's producing in you something other than humility, if it's producing in you a slackness and a presumption that says, because I'm elected from eternity and because 
it's all by grace that I'm saved, then I have no duties. I can sin more that grace will abound. I can be slack and negligent in attending to the means of grace because God's already done all this from eternity. I don't have to do anything. Then you haven't understood the doctrine correctly. See why I say it's a sort of a test, isn't it? it? It confirms one way or another if if we've if our not just our intellect, but if our if our whole person, our hearts have really internalized this correctly. If it's producing in you a growing sense of consolation, a growing sense of comfort in the spirit, a growing sense of comfort in your conscience, because your conscience has been cleansed from dead works, an act that the blood of bulls and goats could never do, so says the writer of Hebrews. If that if that's growing in you, then you've understood the doctrine correctly. If you're becoming more fretful, and less assured in your faith, then then it's possible that you haven't understood the doctrine correctly, and you're still looking at this as somehow depending upon your own righteousness rather rather than upon the perfection of Christ having once for all time offered himself as the propitiation for your sins. So as we come back now, to the, the conclusion of this chapter. And I said I, I confess that I have at, at times wished this paragraph were first. And studying it this week became persuaded, no, it's exactly where it ought to be. Because our minds ought to go first to God and to His glory, His wisdom, His goodness, His divine essence. And only after we have meditated upon that do we think about our own duties. But we ought to think about our own duties. We ought not to neglect those duties. So this this paragraph serves the purpose of reminding us that this is indeed a high mystery. And the special prudence and care with which we hold it means that that our minds are oriented towards God and His incomprehensible mind rather than upon our own minds working these things out. Or on our own minds being able to reconcile what sometimes feels to us like things that that are irreconcilable. The idea of God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility. And how do we reconcile those? Remember what Spurgeon was asked one time, how do you reconcile those? Remember his answer? Do you know his answer? He says, you don't have to reconcile friends. They're not incompatible. But in our finite minds, we wrestle with how to make those comport together. But they're not incompatible in the mind of God. And so having recognizing this as a high mystery that requires special prudence and care, it reminds us of just that fact. There are no contradictions here. There are no incongruence, incongruencies. All of these exist and are perfected in the mind of God. And flowing from that, we respond with a growing diligence in obeying the Word of God, obeying all the precepts of the Gospel, working out our own assurance, as, as a matter of 
faith accompanied by duty and obedience. And the effect of these things, what's, re what's reproduced in us as a result, these covenant graces, is praise, is reverence towards God, is admiration of Him in all of His triune glory, and it also should produce in us a humility, a growing diligence to obey the commands of God, and a consolation, a comfort, a certainty, a sense of I know that I know that I know that I am His and He is mine. Next, next week, uh, we'll start the, the doctrine of creation in chapter 4. But I hope you will We'll go back and, and read through, especially after today's lesson, to go back and read through the chapter 3 and, and test yourself. Uh, apply the test that's here. And as you read through the doctrine of God's decree, what, what kinds of things do you find welling up in you? Are you finding fear and anxiety and worry? Are you finding pride? Are you, are you finding disdain for other brothers and sisters? Or are you finding in yourself a growing sense of praise and awe, admiration of God, thanksgiving to Him? Test yourself in these things, as the Scriptures say. Any, any questions as we wrap up chapter 3? Matthew. Uh-huh. Yeah, and this it's a it's a it's an important question, and 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 sadly, you often will not find the right answer in in our evangelical landscape. The question is, how do I know that I'm a Christian, or how do I how do I where's my sense of assurance? Where's the what's the ground of my certainty? And often the answer is 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 basically the degree of your sanctification. That's often the answer. Is if you are if you will look at yourself and find that you're sanctified enough, then you can be assured of your justification. And that's a sad answer. It's not a comforting answer. I mean, it's almost to go to the theme park and say, if you're not as tall as Mickey's finger, you can't ride the ride. And sometimes we think about baptism in this way, that if you're not sanctified to a certain degree, you can't even be baptized. And so the right answer, biblically, is to look to our justification. And what's the ground of our justification? Christ's blood and righteousness. That's it. It is, it is His blood cleansing us from our sin, his body, his own person becoming a curse for us, dying in our stead, the certificate of debt nailed to the cross with him having been canceled out, and then also the other side of that coin, his full perfect righteousness imputed to us by faith. So how, do, how does someone begin the process of growing in their assurance? They have to add, have I believed this gospel? Am I resting in Christ, Christ alone? Am I resting in His righteousness? Do I believe that He, by faith, has cleansed my sin? Or am I still clinging to the sense of, I've got to gain a certain ground before He will accept me? Does that, does that help? Okay. Okay. 
With Christ's revelation to the world, the promise quite literally became tangible. It was embodied. Before, the Old Testament saints were saved according to this very same promise, but they had lesser light. The, the promise, they were, they were saved by, by trusting and resting in the righteousness of a Redeemer who would come, who would be one day revealed according to God's decree and by, by God's prophetic word but they hadn't seen him yet. And we, as, they, as we say, on this side of the cross, are saved by virtue of the very same faith. Um, in fact, in Second Peter, he says at the, at the opening, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Abraham was saved in exactly the same way. Noah. Isaac, Jacob, any of the saints, David, any of the saints of the Old Testament who were saved were saved in exactly the same way. Um, and in some ways, we might even commend them more because they had less light to go on and yet believe. So there were two parts. Is that okay? Okay. All right. Well, Emerson, do you mind praying for us?